This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are listening to us for the first time here at 88.7 for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's Word. Sometimes there's a particular issue in terms of interpretation or application or a challenge they're facing in their home or ministry that they'd like biblical counsel on. If we can be of help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the 843 exchange is 525 1859 Uh You can call us anywhere in the United States on that, or you can use the toll-free number, 877 the call letters WAGP 980. Or if you prefer, you can email us here directly into the studio and we get questions really from all over the world that way. People are at the Search the Scriptures website and there's a drop down menu uh, called Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. And you can type in your question. And even if you're not present to listen to it on that particular Tuesday, And honestly, typically, if someone asks a question this week, it probably won't be answered next week because it just, we get so many of them. But eventually, by God's grace, it will be answered, and we will email you back, letting you know that your question has been uh, discussed, and you can listen to the answer at wagp.net, where we post the Bible line every Tuesday. Well, with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll begin our time this morning. All right, Pastor. We have a number of questions that have come from all over the country. Our first is from Makiva in Greenville, Texas. She writes, I am coming out of Pentecostalism after seeking God and coming to the knowledge of the Trinity, having been told a lie about it for so many years. I have been in oneness Pentecostalism all my life. I was always taught Baptism was tied to salvation, and it had to be in Jesus' name, or it wasn't valid and you were not saved. There is so much God is undoing in me, including that. My problem is that my husband has not received the revelation I have, and he's been taught the Trinity is the belief in three gods. No matter how much I try to tell him that is not the case, he still insists it is. I'm stuck going to a church I don't believe in, and I don't know what to do. My leaving would mean leaving my kids and husband behind at that church, and I don't want to do that. I can use all the advice I can get. All right, so you raise a number of issues, so let's talk for just a moment about oneness Pentecostalism. Um, Oneness Pentecostals are not representative of all Pentecostal theology. So there are different kinds of Pentecostals, but oneness Pentecostals at their core deny the triunity of God as do Mormons, as do Jehovah's Witness, as do Christian science, Unitarians, Armstrongism, uh, W.A. Armstrong, and um, uh, United Church of God, Unification Church, Unity School. uh, They all deny this essential doctrine. So right off, 
your husband should like, hmm, maybe there's some red flags here. I mean, if Jehovah's Witness deny the doctrine of the Trinity and you know that they aren't right, maybe we could be wrong. If um, Garner Ted Armstrong, I said WA, but Garner Ted Armstrong, uh, Armstrong Ninism, the Worldwide Church of God denies the doctrine of the Trinity, they could be wrong too. So it's it's worth just kind of like putting a little seed thought that if these major groups that, that I'm sure he would view as a cult, uh, I hope he views um, you know, Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism as a, a, as a theological cult, and I say theological, they're not a Jim Jones, drink the poison kind of cult, but they are a cult in that they depart from historic Christian doctrine. If they're wrong, well, maybe we're wrong in oneness Pentecostalism. Um, so, you know, you've got proponents like T.D. Jakes, and sometimes you can, you know, help someone to see the error by finding error in another area. T.D. Jakes is obviously just a crook. He's been stealing from people for years and years and years. He's a prosperity theologian. So he preaches another Jesus. So if he's off, maybe on that doctrine, maybe he's off on some others. And some years ago, he was confronted by a number of evangelicals, and he did not rescind his belief in oneness Pentecostalism. So oneness Pentecostalism, historically called modalism, says that God takes on three different modes. At times, uh, he is uh, displaying himself as the Father. But then the Father can become the Spirit. Then the Spirit can become the Son, and the Son can become the Spirit. But they deny that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons in the Trinity. And so, really, in the opening verses of Scripture, you begin to uh, wonder, well, who's on first here? Because it says here in Genesis one twenty six, then God said, let us make man in our image. And so who is God speaking to? Well, Jehovah's Witness would say that uh, he is dialoguing with angels. Listen, angels were not involved in the creation of the world. God alone is given uh, credit for creation. Uh, Likewise, as you continue further in uh, Genesis, in Genesis uh, 3, verse 22, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. God wanted man to know evil by direct revelation, what he had revealed about it, but not by experience. And so God doesn't know evil himself by experience, but they've become like one of us. Us who? Us meaning the members of the Godhead. Even in Genesis 11 uh, at the uh, Tower of Babel, God says, come let us go down and confuse their language. Interestingly, in the opening verse of Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, technically, God there is a plural noun, elachims, and it's used uh, with a singular verb. In the beginning, God, plural, created singular verb. So even in the opening verse of Scripture, the triunity of God is found in singular uh, kernel form. And so... Elohim is plural because, again, God is affirming his triunity. Now, in English, you only have two forms. You have singular and plural. But in Hebrew, to express plurality, you have three forms. You have singular, you have dual, and you have plurality. And so this is not even a dual. A dual is two only. And so we read, for instance, in Scripture um, that God placed cherubim. That's a dual. 
So a good children's Bible will show two holy angels there at the entrance to the Garden of Eden because they're picking up off of the Hebrew. Then there's a plural, which means three or more. And the plural Elohim is used because there's three members of the Godhead. Dual is for two only, and so there are many examples in Scripture, uh, things that come in pairs like eyes or ears or hands and and yet Elohim is in a plural, yet used with a singular verb, and not by accident, because God is underscoring this truth. So practically, then, you have your oneness Pentecostals who baptize only in Jesus' name. So they uh, would appeal to some passages. There's three specifically in the New Testament, all found in the book of Acts in Acts 2, Uh, They baptize people in the name of Jesus. In Acts 10, you have Cornelius. They baptize he in his house in the name of Jesus. Acts 19, the disciples of John in the name of Jesus. Look, they're not denying the the baptismal formula. What they are underscoring is the truth that they had ignored. And so 53 days earlier, they had slaughtered Jesus, crucified him, said he's only a man. And so they say, well, what should we do? Repent, change your mind. You said he's only a man. He claimed to be God in human flesh and be baptized in his name. They're underscoring that to be baptized in the name of Jesus is to underscore his deity. Likewise, in Acts 10, you have Cornelius, who's a proselyte, He's not, excuse me, he's not a proselyte. That is a Gentile who's converted to Judaism. He's not a Jew. He's a raw Gentile, but he responds to the light that he has. He feared God. He gave even gifts to the Jewish people. Peter comes, preaches the gospel, and commands him to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Why? Because he's underscoring a truth that though he had believed in the one true God, he had not affirmed that God the Son was a member within the Trinity. And again, in Acts 19, you have some people who are John's disciples. They had not yet heard the gospel. Paul asked them some questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when uh, you believe? We haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul went on and explained some basic truths to them, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus because John preached about Yeshua who is to come but they did not know that Yeshua had actually come. They were obviously in Israel during the early days of Paul's, uh, John's ministry when he was preaching about the coming Messiah. So I say all that to say those are some of the erroneous doctrines that Mackenzie from Texas is dealing with. So her fundamental question, and by the way, you use the word revelation. My husband has not had the revelation. Um, that's just coming from your Pentecostal background. Christians don't get a revelation. They get an illumination. Technically, the word revelation uh, uh, is used in reference to Holy Scripture. So we don't get some new theology, some new information that had not been unfolded before. It's just a small issue, but it's an important issue. Um, So when a Christian says, well, I had a revelation today in my quiet time, they didn't. They had an illumination, all the revelation that God is going to give has been given. They may have had an illumination over that revelation that God has given. So what is Mackenzie to do? On the one hand, the Bible teaches we are to separate from those who teach false doctrine. And this is definitely a separation issue. We're not talking about secondary or tertiary issues where maybe we can't fellowship with a person 
because they teach, say, infant baptism versus the biblical view of post-conversion baptism, yet they have the gospel. Uh, Do oneness Pentecostals have the gospel? Absolutely not. You cannot embrace oneness Pentecostalism and say you're a born-again Christian. It's impossible, because when someone is born again, they're given the mind of Christ. They have a new capacity to think their thoughts after God's thoughts. And so when T.D. Jakes was confronted by about 10 godly Christian men over the issue of Trinitarianism, and he could not embrace it, what does that tell you? It tells you right off he's unregenerate, he's lost. And that's reflected in the other Jesus that he preaches in terms of his prosperity theology. So this is definitely an issue of separation. So on the one hand, you should be a member of a Bible-believing church. You need to find one and go there. On the other hand, your heart is like in turmoil because you know that your husband is bringing the kids to a church that teaches gross error. And so what I suggest that you do, because you've made a firm, open commitment so no one could call into question your testimony. No, I'm a member of a Bible-believing church. Yet if you went with him and the kids, you might have opportunity to raise issues. And you need to do this respectfully. Uh, You don't lord it over your husband. But you could say, you know, hey, husband, today the, the preacher said such and such. I was wondering what you think in light of this text over here. Now, I'm assuming that your husband has done a study on this and he's not just shut his mind. But if he hasn't, then I would point you to my course on pneumatology. And in pneumatology, pneumatos is the Greek word for spirit. And so when we speak of pneumatology, we're talking about the doctrine of the spirit. In that course, I deal with the error of modalism. Because the Bible teaches that God is one, but he exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So your husband is affirming the oneness of God, but he's denying the triunity of God. So I'm assuming he's worked through that, and he's had an intelligent presentation of the triunity of God. And if not, then I would, hey, let's, would you study this with me? And since you're, you know, the leader of our home, give me your opinion, give me your reaction to these truths that I'm wrestling with. So that might be a way in which to do it. And again, you will often find in these churches other error. And if you can raise those errors, you can certainly say, hey, if he's wrong here, maybe he could be wrong over here. But you still need to teach your children the truth. And so if your husband says, do not teach them Trinitarianism, then you say, well, I'm going to respectfully disobey because I must obey God rather than man. And you be the best wife you can be, show him respect. But when there are, comes to issues of obedience, we must obey God rather than man. Good question. It's, uh, in, in, again, it's a given here. You need to be in prayer for your husband, prayer and fasting for your husband, that God would open his eyes up to this gross error of oneness Pentecostalism. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we've got David on line one. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead, David. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I will have to hang up after the question, but I will be listening. Okay. Uh, My question is regarding paganism. So I have a close family member who's started to, who is a Christian, but because of some stuff online has recently said they're starting to get into paganism. And when I try to say that doesn't line up with Christianity, they laugh and roll their eyes saying, I don't know what I'm talking about, and they're not wrong. I don't. So I didn't know if you can give me a little 
maybe a brief explanation of what pagans believe and why it doesn't line up with Scripture. Thank you very much. Okay, so there's a broad definition of paganism, and there's a more minute definition. In the broad sense, all unbelievers are pagans. That is, they if they do not acknowledge the one true God, then they have a distorted view of God. Now, with that said, they could be on their way to conversion, so Cornelius, or Cornelius, if you prefer, in Acts chapter 10, he is responding to the light, to the revelation that he has. When God describes him for us, he describes him as a God-fearing person. So in that sense, even though he's lost, he's not yet saved. He is um, not a true believer. He's described as a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. So he's responding to the light he has. And by the way, he's an excellent illustration concerning people who've never heard the plan of salvation before. The biblical principle is that light responded to brings more light. And so if a man responds to what he knows to be true, then God will give him more light, and he does so. He he does a work in his heart, giving him direction, and he does the work in Peter's heart, and uh, he brings the two together. So um, there's a broad sense in which the term sometimes paganism is used in reference to someone who's lost. Uh, but the more pointed sense, paganus, is from a Latin word, paganus. We get our English word pagan, and it typically refers to someone who's polytheistic. That is, they worship more than one god. And so there were pagans that are described in Scripture in that they were Romans and they had a multiplicity of gods and they are denying uh, the uh, one true God whom created them. And all men start as monotheists, by the way. But then there's a more modern term, and I'm assuming that's what you're using, what we call neo-paganism, which would refer to these modern-day forms of paganism like Wicca, like a um, Gwiden in other satanic practices. And so they're very similar, I think, to the ancient counterparts in that uh, behind every false god, Paul would argue typically there's a demon. And so in modern-day paganism, uh, they typically rely on hedonistic behavior, sexual gratification, self-indulgence, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of pleasure to the exclusion of everything else. And, of course, uh, that's contrary to a number of passages of Scripture that God has given. Um, In Isaiah 57, on a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up a memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their nakedness. So there's an example of people rejecting the one true God, Isaiah 57, and with it comes self-gratification, sexual gratification. So what I would do with your dear friend, this relative, is just to remind them that everything they believe is based on something. They either read it in the book, they made it up, uh, they uh, were told it by a priest or a rabbi or a pastor, but just believing something does not make it true. You can believe 2 plus 2 equals 5. It obviously does not. And so the fundamental question that your friend has to ask and answer for themselves is, 
It's this. Is the Bible the only authoritative source of God speaking? And I would say yes. And since this caller called with such an excellent question, uh, if they will call back, we will send them the little booklet, uh, Five Proofs, uh, for showing the Bible is the only book God wrote. God didn't inspire the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Upanishads or the Vedas or some encyclical letter or some papal bull. The only uh, thing that God wrote was the Holy Bible. And so then you can take any idea that this person has out of paganism. So take Wicca. It's associated with all kinds of sexual immorality. And you can say, well, if the Bible is true, over here in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor revilers, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Um, anyone can be saved, but such were some of you. God can save anyone from any kind of a background. But he is saying, don't be deceived. And so fundamental to paganism is deception. They combine sexual immorality with a false view of God. And it's the old adage, and it's true, that a man's theology is often dictated by his morality. So take something as basic as Mormonism, which is another form of paganism, not used in the neo-paganistic definition where we usually restrain it to things like Wicca and other things like that, but it's still a demonic religion. It's still rooted in a false view of God where man can become a god in in Mormonism. And again, here was a man who had 44 wives, which, by the way, is one of the reasons a lot of Mormons are now leaving. You know, they've tried to perpetuate this image of family and wholesomeness, and now with the Internet and being able to literally historically document the many wives of Joseph Smith, people have put some question marks after Mormonism. And so, again, if you want to have a plurality of wives, as he had 44, then you write a book that affirms that plurality. Now, Scripture records people who were bigamous or polygamous, but God never endorses it. Just like in Genesis, um, excuse me, Matthew 19, Jesus takes the Pharisees back to Genesis. Have you not read what the Scripture said? that God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one. So he defines marriage biblically between a man and a woman, and not a man and multiple women, not between a man and a man and a man and two women, uh, but between a man and a woman, period. So again, if you have a plumb line, you can go back, you can do some analysis And so then what the fundamental issue becomes is they're denying the plain truth of Scripture. This is what you are saying based on this paganistic religion that you're in, but this is what the Bible says. So if they say, well, then I don't believe the Bible, then, well, one, they're denying what they know to be true because in the one hand, the Bible is self-evident, just like the the existence of God is self-evident. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Well, even so, the nature of the Bible being unique is self-evident in that it's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and so when people hear it, it pierces the heart. Um, So, But you can go and give some even logical, self-contained proofs within the Bible itself 
to show that it's the only book God wrote? That's a great question. We could spend two hours on it, but let's move to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Renee from uh, Fletcher, North Carolina, writes, I was baptized at your church since leaving the apostate United Methodist Church two years ago, which we had attended over 20 years. We have had a really hard time finding a New Testament church in our area. We are on our fourth try in two years. The church we are now at has just come to our attention that the pastor has been divorced and remarried. Possibly his wife also has been divorced in the past. My first question is, can a pastor be formerly divorced? My reading of scripture says no, but I know there is debate on this even amongst conservative Christians. So as uh, both my husband and I hold you in high esteem, we're seeking your or another pastor's answer, another pastor from CVC. Secondly, uh, what do we do if we can't find a New Testament church in our area not affiliated with any apostasy that would teach the Bible as it is written? I am at a loss and have become very discouraged with visiting churches only to find out that they are teaching Calvinism or the pastor's divorced or they are affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, there's a lot of questions there, so let me step through uh, each one. First, let me begin with, can a pastor be divorced? And the simple answer is no. Uh, When 1 Timothy 3, in verse 1, introduces us to the qualifications for an elder, he said, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he be able to take care of the church of God? So God's not down on divorced people. Understand that Uh, A divorced person can serve in any capacity in the local assembly. They could teach Sunday school. They could teach children. They could be a missionary. They could be an evangelist, possibly. But because those are all areas that represent spiritual gifts, and God doesn't give spiritual gifts uh, respective to a person's past. And so a person could have been married five times, then converted, and God gives them the gift of evangelism or the gift of teaching. But what should be done is if someone especially has a speaking gift where they are representing God's word in a more public stature, it's essential that they don't rationalize their failures from the past. So it says that an elder, these are not optional, he must be, and among other qualifications, the husband of one wife. Now, this has been taken in various ways um, in modern-day evangelicalism. Some would say that this would exclude a single person from serving in the office of pastor. While it is typical for a person to be married in this life, and so like when Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1 and he gives the qualifications for an elder, there's an assumption that he's married, and that's a fair assumption because God calls 99% of people in this world to get married. But it's not always wrong to be single. Sometimes it is uh, God's plan for some people to be single. And Paul addresses this issue in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
where a person who's single can give undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord. And so occasionally you will meet a single pastor who's been single his entire life. And it's not because he's homosexual or weird or unmarriable and that he has some quirky personality. It's just that God has called him to be single and we shouldn't try to marry him off. And sometimes there are single people in the church that people want to always set up with someone. They think, well, they're just lonely and they need someone to go through life with. And listen, it's not good for a man or a woman to be alone, but there are some people God designed to be that way their whole life and you shouldn't try to marry them off. So one, some would say, well, the husband of one wife means he has to be married. Some would say, well, this is a prohibition against someone who is married and then lost their wife and married a second time uh, so that they could not keep uh, the husband of one wife's stature. I don't think so for the simple reason the reverse expression is used of widows where it doesn't say a one-woman man, but a one-man woman. And Paul is encouraging younger widows to remarry, and I don't think so to the potential possibility that they could later be excluded from the honor roll of those special widows in the church. So I don't think this is a prohibition against uh, a a man who lost his wife through death and then he's prohibited from being married again such that he couldn't serve as a pastor. Some would say, well, what he means is one woman at a time and that this is a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy. Bigamy, of course, being two wives, polygamy, three or more. Uh, Certainly not. Uh, Under the New Covenant, such a person wouldn't be considered as a potential candidate for the eldership. He'd be considered as a candidate for church discipline. Under the New Covenant, God's standards are much different. There are people under the Old Covenant that you will meet in heaven who had more than one wife, i.e. King David, i.e. King Solomon. Uh, Are they believers? Yes. But under the New Covenant, under this dispensation, you might say, under this age, the relationship to the Holy Spirit, to both the believer and to a lost world, is very, very different. And so a polygamist, a polygamist, polygamist or bigamist would not be considered believers. Uh, God has taken our heart of stone and he's turned it into a heart of flesh. Uh, this was even against the law under Roman law. And by the way, it's been against the law in America, though there's a place outside of Boston, Somerville, that recently in the last couple of years passed an ordinance where they said polygamy was fine. I don't know if that will end up going to the Supreme Court or or not. But I don't see how the Supreme Court could rule any differently than um, maybe the people in Somerville decided. Because if gay marriage is okay, then why shouldn't polygamous marriage be okay? So it will be interesting to see when that eventually becomes a Supreme Court case. I have no doubt it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Um, Most people historically, at least for 1,900 years, took this to be an exclusion from someone who had been married and divorced, serving in the office of elder or pastor. All the Protestant reformers, by the way, took it that way. Um, And so uh, for us to take it differently is not only to go against the Protestant Reformation, it's not only to go against what the early church fathers taught, but I think it's to go against the clear word of Scripture. 
And again, it's a protective device. If I've been married four times and I'm a pastor and I go to speak in the pulpit on how to have a good marriage, I'm not speaking with much authority. And because God says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce, um, he does not want to give a platform to something that he hates because he wants to protect marriage because he hates divorce. He, he says it's against the covenant of your wife and it's against your children. Very often you ask children, hey, if your parents had the chance to be together, but maybe they fought a lot, would you rather have them divorced or together? And almost always they'll say together because there's a sense of security that children find when dad and mom are still committed in the confines of marriage and always maybe with the hope or expectation that things could get better, things could change. So, um, no, a divorced man cannot be a pastor of a local church. And so I would just say, and by the way, the same qualification is given for deacons, so the same would apply there. Uh, But I would say that you might want to listen to my series on the role of an elder in the church, and I think that might be very useful to you. Now, in response to your finding a church, you need to find the best one. Okay, you say some are Calvinistic. What do you mean by that? Uh, Do you mean that they teach replacement theology? Okay, they may. You know, if I lived, say, in the town where Alistair Begg was the pastor and that was the only good church, you know where I'd go? I'd go where Alistair Begg was the pastor. Does he believe in replacement theology? Sadly, he does. He's amillennial. Um, But would I embrace his amillennialism? No. But does he have the gospel? Yes. Does he preach the truth? Yes. Do I think he's wrong on this issue? Yes. And so you find the best church that you can. And again, sometimes you can just agree to disagree. Someone may be Calvinistic, not just in terms of their eschatology, but maybe in terms of their doctrine of salvation. And they believe that God saves some to go to heaven and he created others to go to hell. Um, Look, if that's the only church that has the gospel in your town, then you go and and if they're, you know, copacetic on other critical doctrines, then I would, I would go with them. Hey, listen, just because a church is Southern Baptist doesn't mean they're heretical. In fact, I would say the majority of Southern Baptist churches are still very, very sound. But our Southern Baptists going through turmoil right now, you better believe it. They're in deep trouble, and they're headed potentially for a split. And sometimes splits are necessary. But that doesn't mean that every Southern Baptist church is bad. And again, every Southern Baptist church is autonomous. There's not a hierarchy like in the Methodist church that you left where there's a controlling super pastor. They call him a bishop, and they create a different definition of bishop than the New Testament does. Like he's a super pastor who can move people around and so on. In the New Testament, the word bishop, depending on your English or presbyter or elder or pastor or shepherd are all used of the same office, all used of the same office, not some hierarchical system. And so fundamental to Baptist theology is the autonomy of the local church. And so while a church may be Southern Baptist, they are not controlled by Nashville or Atlanta or some superstructure over them. And they may at some point decide they can't embrace you know, this nonsense. Now, I would say that's different, say, with cooperative Baptists. Cooperative Baptists fundamentally at their inception denied uh, biblical infallibility. 
and they deny, um, in addition, uh, that um, the office of elder is only for men. Tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, and I'll tell you how a woman can be a pastor. She can't. So a woman who calls herself a pastor is not a pastor. She's not a pastor. She may call herself a pastor, but in God's eyes, she is not a pastor because there's no such thing, biblically speaking, as women pastors. So these are critical issues. You need to find the best church you can find and be in it because you don't want to forsake your assembling together of the brethren. And even if it's a church that maybe doesn't have a strong pulpit, there are some pastors out there who are just doing everything they know, and they're, they're the only person that God has right now to serve in that capacity. Maybe they're not some great expositor, but they have the gospel, and they're trying to live a lifestyle of godliness and to call the people to that. Then you be a part of that church. Do not rationalize this and say, well, this gives me permission not to go to church anywhere, because it doesn't. Find the best one you can be a part of and and serve it and pray for the pastor. Good question. All right, very good. Steve called and dictated his question. He says in Genesis 6, 4, it talks about the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And Steve would like to know, do angels have a genetic code? How did they have kids with humans? Angels can't reproduce themselves alone, correct? Well, that's right. Angels cannot procreate with other angels and create angel babies. And that's why Jesus, in describing us in our resurrected body after the Sadducees came up with some convoluted example about a woman who had been married and she lost seven husbands in a row. (laughs) When I think uh, she lost her third or fourth husband in the row, I don't think I would even consider marrying her. But, you know, she's like a black widow. But lay all that aside. The fact is, is that they create this made-up example. And Jesus said, no, in heaven we're like the angels. We don't become angels. We're like the angels in that we're neither married nor given in marriage where we have children and so on. So, uh, but that does not say that an angel, uh, which, by the way, they always appear in male form in Scripture, and you can potentially entertain an angel, the Bible says, and not even know it. Uh, So there are no female angels in Scripture. But nonetheless, uh, it's possible for an angel to procreate with a human. How do I know that? Because not only do we have Genesis chapter 6, but in addition, we have New Testament commentary on this passage. So I think it might be helpful for this caller, Steve, wherever he's from, to uh, go download the Search the Scriptures app and type in Genesis, and there's 50-some sermons on Genesis, and maybe listen to the sermon on Genesis 6. But it is interesting to look at the descriptive words that are used that came about when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now, it does not say the... um, sons of men saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. It says the sons of God, the Bane Elohim, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. And then God said, he starts a countdown clock. Uh, It doesn't mean that man will live 120 years, but he says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. 
because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So God is looking down and he's saying there's 120 years left. And of course, the offspring is freakish that happens, the Nephilim. And uh, evil seems to grow and develop and deepen. And so as it gets worse and worse and God sees that the intentions of man's heart are continually evil. He appears to Noah, a righteous man in the midst of a godless culture, which, by the way, is a reminder that no matter how bad things get, a person can still raise a godly heritage. Noah raised a godly heritage in the midst of godless days. And that's an important note. Uh, So keep that in mind, you young families who have these children. And it seems like everything is coming unglued, but that doesn't mean as you watch over your heart with all diligence that you cannot raise a godly heritage. So in the book of Jude, we have some commentary. There's only one chapter in Jude, and it says, And angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode. In other words, there were some angels that he's describing who did something that was contrary to the way God created them. What did God do with these angels? He has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's a classification of angels, fallen angels, who didn't keep their own domain, those uh, parameters that God said they could function within, but they abandoned their proper abode. And unlike uh, other fallen angels that can wage war in the heavenly places, and even unlike angels who committed some heinous sin, not including this, who are put in the abyss, but someday will be let out during the time of the great tribulation. There's a third group of fallen angels who did something that was so wicked, so heinous that they are in eternal bonds. And then the next verse is very telling, just as. In other words, there's a comparison between what the angels did who didn't keep their own proper domain, but abandoned their proper abode with Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And again, they're both exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So there's a parallel. And so when people engage in um, homosexuality, they are denying their proper abode the way God created them. They're denying who they are made to be in the image of God. And this is why, um, you know, when you have guys like Sam Alberry, who is saying that it's okay to be a gay Christian, just uh, put some uh, ultimate parameters on how you express it. But it's okay to have, you know, same-sex attraction. So we have all these so-called evangelicals who are talking about same-sex attraction. There is no such thing in terms of being a true biblicist. So you cannot um, claim to be a good, godly Christian and embrace same-sex attraction Christianity. But this is the new thing that has gone down the pike that people are saying is fine, and it's not fine. Um, So it's really important. So you got guys like Tim Keller. He's supposed to be a Christian apologist. He's a heretic. He's just a heretic. I don't know how else to say it. And he's done tremendous damage to the body of Christ. 20-some years ago, I would not allow his book, Reason for God, in 
use at Community Bible Church for the simple reason that he was a theistic evolutionist. And then more recently, he's embraced the revoice movement. Listen, listen, same-sex desire feelings should be repented just like heterosexual lust should be repented. It needs to be brought under the control of God's Spirit through the renewing of the mind through God's holy word. So he is describing here a class of angels. And by the way, Peter does the same thing uh, in his book. Second Peter 2, by the way, is kind of a parallel chapter to the book of Jude, If the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Jude is the Acts of the Apostates. And Peter commits a a chapter to such people. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and it's the word Tartarus, it's not the word Gehenna. No one's in Gehenna right now, but there's a compartment of hell where these angels are who are in eternal bonds in If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, in other words, while I'm talking about these angels who lived in Noah's day, let's go to Noah's day itself. He's connecting the two in his mind. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, then he's going to do the same to uh, apostates. And by the way, that's the subject this Sunday, the apostasy of the last days. There are many signs for living in the last of the last days, that final time frame before the second coming happens. Again, the rapture is not a prophetically driven event, only the second coming. But when we see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know the rapture is that much closer. So Tim Keller should be an example to you that we're in the last days. How can this man who calls himself a theologian, who's been followed by tens of thousands, who's made millions off of the backs of evangelicals in the Christian presses, call himself a good born-again Christian and embrace the revoice movement? He cannot. This is the heresy of the last days. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Thomas also called in a few minutes ago and dictated the question. He'd like to know what can be done to get pastors to come together, specifically across different ethnicities. Well, I, I think some people are trying too hard. You know, they think that, um, you know, we got to get black and white pastors and Hispanic pastors and all these people together so we can hold hands. Doesn't really matter what you believe, just as long as we come together. Look, um, racism, there's only one race. It's the human race. There's degrees of melatonin in the skin, but there's only one race. And typically, if a pastor is a godly man and he's preaching the Word of God, he'll have no problem getting people of other ethnicities and other colors together. We had a pastor's conference here in November. We brought in Palmetto family, and there's about 300 churches in Beaufort County. Uh, We tried to identify those that have the gospel, and we came up with about 120, and we invited those pastors, and many black pastors and Hispanic pastors and some other ethnicities came. Why? Because they know that we teach the truth. And so if you're a truth teller, you have fellowship with those pastors. It's not a problem. 
That's not to say that someone could come who was not a truth teller, and I welcome them in the sense that, you know, maybe I can win them to Jesus. But look, there's a lot of white pastors and there's a lot of black pastors in Beaufort County who don't even preach the gospel who are not born again. Why would I want to bring them together? I wouldn't. Because God doesn't teach that when we all hold hands, that that's how the world is going to know that we're one. Uh, No, Jesus in the high priestly prayer speaks about oneness. He speaks about how the world will know that the Father has sent them by our ability to get along. One, that first and foremost expression is in the local church. What do people in your local church do? And if a church, again, is biblically centered, it should be reflective of the culture around it. So if you come to Community Bible Church, you're going to see people of all kinds of ethnicities. Why? Because as folks are born again, and then as they grow in grace, their view of people change. You know, if if you've been saved, but you haven't grown in grace much, maybe you discriminate on all kinds of different levels. You you just invite people who are like you. If you're wealthy, upper middle class, you'll invite people like that. If you're poor, you'll invite poor people. Look, God is not a respecter of persons. We should invite anyone and everything that moves. That's what we're to do. That's what Christ has called us to. And he has called us... Uh, to come out of the world, to be different from the world, and we are to, uh, by our model, by our example, demonstrate oneness. Again, that's not to say that outside of the local fellowship there shouldn't be oneness. There should be. And so the body of Christ is a universal body. It's the Catholic Church, Catholic with a small c. It's the universal body of Christ. So, for instance, the church I'm privileged to pastor, we have hundreds of missionaries, hundreds that we support. And when you meet our missionaries, they come from like all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of nations. You know, why do we support, say, pastors in India who were born and raised in India? Because uh, they have the gospel, because they're born again believers, and because we want to partner with them. Why would we support Russian and Ukrainian pastors? Because they have the gospel because we want to partner with them. Why do we support and why are we help building a, a new Bible pastoral college in Rwanda with some black pastors? Because they have the gospel, and we want to partner with them. And so that's an expression of what Jesus is speaking of when he describes this oneness that we are to have. So it's not just bringing all these people together. Our oneness is based on truth. Jesus will say here in the high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. And so God wants us to display that. And then he says, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So ultimately, first, comes down to your local fellowship. And if you have a local fellowship where you've got people who are infighting and they can't get along, then that's a terrible testimony. Uh, that's not a testimony that Jesus was sent by God the Father. So it's the oneness within the Trinity that should express itself in the body of Christ. Um, That's what Jesus taught. 
And, and again, if a church is growing in grace, they'll be reflective of the community. So if you're in a community where it's all white people or all black people, that's what you'd expect the local church to be. But there are a few communities like that in the world today. Um, we're kind of a melting, melting pot here in America. So, you know, on Sunday I had a new members lunch and I had a couple from Brazil and I had a couple, um, you know, so they were Portuguese. So they speak Portuguese in Brazil and then we had a couple that were Hispanic, and uh, they, um, you know, have their origins in Mexico. They brought their father-in-law, who was born and raised in Mexico, and he was a young Marine with his wife and their their children, and they found Christ at our church, and as did the couple from Brazil. Uh, they found Christ and were born again just in the last few months here at Community Bible Church. And then we had uh, a white couple, and then a kind of a... Uh, a blended single mom and a uh, grandmother, I should say. And uh, so it was a, really, it was a variety of people because why our, our community is a variety. And if we're obeying the great commission, we're going to reach anything and everything that moves. All right. Very good. Well, uh, we've only got two minutes left. So uh, I think this question would fit in. Uh, we had a caller that would like to know how things went with your trip to Israel. Oh, thank you for asking. It was a phenomenal trip. It always is. It's a privilege for me to be able to bring people to Israel. We went to 42 different sites. Uh, I taught at each one. Uh, We had a tremendous team of people that came with us, and it's thrilling to see people put visuals to the very things that they've been reading about their whole life, and even just to put geographical distances in their heart and mind as to these places that the Bible speaks of. So as we stood there on the Mount of Olives, I often use the illustration, suppose I'm up there in the baptismal and you go all the way down through the choir loft, down the steps to the floor, that's the Kidron Valley, and then you go all the way up to the sound room. They could could see what I had been speaking of, that on the Mount of Olives, between the Mount of Olives and uh, the uh, top of the Temple Mount, there's a valley. It's called the Kidron at the base of the valley. There's the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And so they're able to put visuals to these places that God's Word addresses. So you don't have to go to Israel to understand the Bible, but it certainly opens some things up. And so hopefully, God willing, we will go again in 2023. Uh, fortunately, they've just changed all the testing requirements, vaccination requirements in Israel. I think they realize um, maybe they're not working as well as they thought, but they're dropping them all. And so maybe that won't be a stumbling block to people coming the next time. Well, we're out of time. I want to invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church. We're dealing with the apostasy of the last days with doctrines of demons that are predicted, prophesied to be taught at the end of time. So I invite you to come and join us, 9.15 or 11. For those who are listening in other parts of the world, you can live stream us at communitybiblechurch.us. God bless you.